there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. The Bible says that there is seed that falls on good soil. They are those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by perseverance produce a crop. Hear the word, retain it, and by perseverance produce a crop. God gives to the farmer the rain and the sun and the soil and the seed, but God does not give to the farmer the work that God does not do for the farmer, the planting and the plowing and the harvesting and all of that. And so it, so it is in the spiritual life. God gives us the soil, but we are the ones who by perseverance have to produce a crop. And it is my prayer. I keep hearing a boom. It is my prayer that there will be some here who will persevere. Let's pray. Help us, Lord, to hear what you have to say to us, to heed it, and to do something about it. In Jesus' name, amen. For any honest and earnest Christian, a legitimate question is, Whose agenda do you accept? Will it be your own or will it be God's? There is no greater display of pride in the world than in contests of our will with God. Let's remember that it is a display of pride when we refuse the will of God or when we question it. And how often are we tempted to question the will of God? Why does God do this? Why did God allow that? Of course, those questions arise, and we can keep a quiet heart by remembering that God knows exactly what he's doing, and he never makes a mistake. Some of you may have thought that God had made a mistake last night in not bringing me here because you had your mouths all set for my coming, and God had some other things in mind. So whatever you saw on the video last night, I have no idea what I've said in those videos. <laughs> so you might get the same stuff again today. That was probably 12 years ago or so that I did that. And so that explains the question in your own mind, is that Elizabeth Elliot? <laughs> because one lady who told me that her little boy had been listening to me on the radio for a number of months, uh, she brought him to a meeting and pointed me out to him, and that's what he said. Is that Elizabeth Elliot? <laughs> Just last January, a year ago, Lars and I went back for a visit to the Alca Indians in eastern Ecuador. And as soon as I got out of the plane, we were surrounded by, some, by lots of people that I had never seen before because they had been born long since I had left there. But also, there were some old folks, and the first thing they said to me was, Gikari, Tikyaninimba, which means Gikari, which is my Alka name, 
how old you've gotten. <laughs> and of course I said to them, meaning, and you all are just as old, because I think they were a little older than I was when I left there, uh, these particular ones that were accusing me of being old. Well, of course, I acknowledge without any question or without any resentment, I am old. I'm not just getting old, I got there. <laughs> and I'm thankful for old age. It is a gift from God, and gray hair is a crown of glory, according to Proverbs, so I'm not going to do anything about it. I'm going to keep it. I hope it gets grayer and whiter and everything else. But are we accepting the will of God? Are we prepared humbly and gratefully and faithfully to receive his will and say, not my will be done. My mother had a contest of wills with the oldest of her six children, who was my older brother. I'm number two of a family of six. And we lived in Belgium at that time. My parents were missionaries, and that's where I was born. And my brother was three years old, and he was two years old, I guess, when this contest of wills first took place. And my mother had no idea that that's what it was really going to amount to. It was just a simple case of she was giving him lunch and he just decided that he wasn't going to drink his milk. He had, drunk, he had eaten whatever else she'd given him, but he was not going to drink his milk. And so he had pitted his will against my mother's. And my mother, being an earnest Christian mother who knew that she was going to be held responsible by God for disciplining her children, realized that this was a serious event, and she better be very careful how she handled it. And so she simply said in a very quiet way to Phil, you may, have your, you may get down when you drink your milk. And there was a long pause, and he said, want to get down. She said, when you drink your milk, you may get down. And she went about her business in the kitchen, and he sat there with a very angry look on his face. And every few minutes he would say, want to get down. And she would politely and calmly reply, when you drink your milk, you may get down. She said, as this went on, she wondered how long it was going to go on. It probably went on for about an hour or more. But she was saved from the second hour by the sound of the milkman arriving. And in Brussels, Belgium, the milk in those days arrived by dog cart. There were two big Belgian Bouvier dogs that pulled the cart, and the milkman had great cans of milk, and each housewife had to run out with her own pitchers or bowls or whatever and buy the amount of milk that she wanted from him. Well, Phil absolutely loved watching those big, huge dogs. And so when he heard the rattle of the milk cart over the cobblestones, down went the milk. And at that point, he willed to do my mother's will, but only because it happened to match what he wanted to do more than drinking the milk. And so that is the way it is with us and the Lord, isn't it? He knows better than we do. He is a loving father. And he knows what's good for us. 
I hear mothers talk about having a strong-willed child. My question is, what kind of strength is it? Is it strong enough to pit his will against yours? What did we just see in the mime? Jesus, in his agony in the garden, said, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. In his human nature, he knew what suffering and death he was going to be facing. But he said, if it is not possible, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And that is strength of will. My brother's was not strength of will. It was plain, old-fashioned stubbornness. And so when you say you have a strong-willed child, be careful, because every last one of us is born a rebel. And God requires parents to civilize these little barbarians, these little savages, and to bring some kind of order and peace into the home. But it's going to cost you, isn't it, to do that. And it costs God. It costs him everything to redeem us. A contest of wills. We will never have a quiet heart until we bring our own wills into harmony with that of God. There will always be conflict and anger. I know a good many people that seem to me to have a quiet heart. Personally, I did say to you that one of my reasons for writing this book, Keep a Quiet Heart, was that I don't seem to meet very many, many in the sense of the hundreds and thousands of people that I do meet. But I have been greatly blessed in my life by having the privilege of observing and knowing personally more than one person who certainly had a quiet heart. And one of those was dear Mrs. Kershaw. You may have heard me talk about her. I talk about her a good bit on my program, and I've written about her. Mrs. Kershaw was a poor, hunchbacked widow who lived in a big old, almost empty house. It was greatly in need of repair. And she lived alone in that house, and somehow or other my mother found her. I don't know how. I was away at college when my mother began to write letters about this wonderful lady named Mrs. Kershaw, who in her 70s came to work for my mother. And she came every day, had to be picked up. And she was totally deaf, hunchbacked, poor, lonely, and totally deaf. But she did have an old-fashioned kind of a hearing aid. It was a clumsy thing that she had pinned to her dress here, and then it had a wire up to her ear, and then she had a little microphone that she had to hold for us to shout into. But that lady had no agenda of her own. She had only one thing in mind when she came to my mother's, to our home, and that was, how can I make these people happy? What can I do to help these people? And she would make gallons of applesauce and dozens of brown sugar cookies, and she washed dishes, and she did the laundry, and she did one thing that we all found extremely difficult. She would go upstairs every day and sit with my step-grandmother, who was a crotchety old lady, and we had a hard time relating to her. My mother was always urging us, go in and talk to Nana. Well, we didn't think Nana was really very interested in talking with us, and I think we were right about that. But she certainly 
would have rather have one of us in there, I should think, than to be alone all day long. And Mrs. Kershaw would always take some time to go up and sit with Nana. Now, of course, Nana was also deaf. Can you imagine the conversations? It was like ships that passed in the night. Neither one of them had any idea what the other one was talking about. But Mrs. Kershaw smiled all the time and actually was the only one, I think, besides my mother in the family that could make Nana smile. A humble, quiet-hearted woman. An example to me all my life. Whose agenda are you accepting? I had a letter from a woman who told me that she had been praying very specifically that her daughter would marry a particular man that the mother had picked out for her. He was a very fine Christian man, and the mother thought that this would be a very good match, and discovered that neither her daughter nor her husband agreed with her. And so she told me in her letter, I am angry with God because he didn't make my husband and my daughter agree with me, and so I am not going to pray anymore about her spouse. And I thought, what a dangerous position to put oneself in, to decide from now on that I'm angry with God, and therefore I don't need to pray about this particular matter, that he has not conformed his will to mine. What pride and presumption. Now I looked up the word presumption to make sure that I had it right, and this is what the dictionary says. Audacity, insolence, arrogance, effrontery, which means shameless boldness, transgression beyond the bounds of duty, or of courtesy. Presumption. I've been asked more than once in my life, have you, have you ever been angry with God? I had, I've had many letters from people telling me something like this. My faith has been challenged. There has been bitterness in my heart toward God, and I have been angry at him for withholding this blessing from me. And the mail brings me many variations on this theme. I'm often asked if I've ever been bitter or angry toward God because he took away two husbands, the first by murder and the second by illness. He has mercifully given me yet a third, as you saw a few minutes ago, and as far as I know, he's in excellent health. But unless my memory completely forsakes me, I really think that I can answer no, to that question. I have not, as far as I can recall, been bitter or angry at God. Our adversary, the devil, has certainly tempted me in many ways. Don't imagine for a moment that you're looking at someone who is not often tempted. But I don't think anger of God at God happens to be one of those temptations. And I will try to explain why. First of all, God is my Heavenly Father. My Heavenly Father. And He loves me with an everlasting love. And the proof of this 
is the cross. You would probably, all of you, be able to quote John 3.16. Can you also quote 1 John 3.16? It says, this is how we know what love is, that Christ laid down his life for us. And we, in our turn, must lay down our lives for each other. Love means sacrifice. This is how we know what love is, that Christ laid down his life for us. You know the hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Love so amazing, so divine, demands, say it with me, my soul, my life, my all. People that are in my generation, I'm sure, know that. We don't have that many. We don't have that big a percentage of people in my generation here this morning. But unfortunately, uh, most churches today are not teaching very many of the old hymns. And I want to put in a little word here. Please learn the old hymns. You have no idea what you're missing theologically. We children were asked to sing every single morning after breakfast, not just asked, but it was required in our family that we had family prayers, and they began with a hymn, and we sang all the verses, and consequently we learned them all by heart, and we are so grateful for that. When my siblings and I, I have four brothers and one sister, when we get together, we do a lot of laughing, we do a lot of talking about our parents and how wonderful they were, and we do a lot of singing because we all have these old hymns in our heads. So that's a little parenthesis, which I hope may fall on some listening ears. But if God is my Heavenly Father, if he laid down his life for me, doesn't it make sense to assume, isn't it reasonable to assume that he knows a whole lot better than I do what's good for me? Angry at God? Our Heavenly Father wants nothing but the best for us, for any of us. Was it best that our plane could not land in Chicago yesterday? Of course, I have to believe it was. Otherwise, it wouldn't have happened. God's in control of the weather, isn't he? I am not at the mercy of United Airlines. So they had to send us to Minneapolis. When we got to Minneapolis, there were so, so many other planes on the ground that there, wasn't, there were no ga- gates. And so we couldn't get off the plane. And I don't know how long we sat there, an hour and a half or so, two hours maybe. And then they sent us back to Chicago. And you can imagine the state that the Chicago airport was when all the flights from everywhere had been canceled in and out of Chicago because of tremendous wind and sleet. And there were leaks all over the airport. They had tubs everywhere you looked on the floor. But I know that my Heavenly Father wants nothing but the best for me. And so I can keep a quiet heart, even though I have to think about the poor people out there in Dubuque who were expecting us to arrive. And only he knows what that is, because he is all-wise. He is the omniscient. Omnipotent, all-powerful, omnipresent, he's everywhere, and omniscient. He knows everything. Even an earthly father wants his best for his child. And you mothers, you certainly know that there isn't any question but what you want the best for your child. You want the very best. 
And very often you think you know what's the very best, and God doesn't always provide it, does he? And that's the point where he's saying, whose agenda? Yours or mine? God knows not only what we need, but when we need it. When he withholds from us the one thing we feel sure would make us happy, it is well to remember his promise that he will meet all our needs. I get so many anguished letters from young women, very often women in their 30s and 40s who are still single, and they feel as though God is withholding from them the one thing in the whole world that would make them happy. And of course, we married women could tell them that there isn't a human being in the world who can make you as happy as you think that unknown possible husband might be. Because we all know that after the wedding, maybe within 24 hours, (laughs) there are some surprises in this prize package. (laughs) Some things that you didn't know even though you knew the man for six years or ten years or grew up with him from kindergarten. And I get a whole lot of letters from anguished women who wish they were not married. Whose agenda? A contest of wills. Is it my will or his? Now, the Bible says, my God shall supply all your need. And if you don't have it, you don't need it today. We must get that through our heads, mustn't we? We think we know what we've got to have. And a woman came to me and she said, Elizabeth, would you please pray that the Lord will give us another housing situation? She described what was really a very miserable kind of housing situation that she was living in. They were missionaries. This was over in Europe. And they were living in the basement of another missionary's home. And they had three or four children. Please, Elizabeth, we've got to have another place to live. And I said, no. You don't need it now. And she looked at me with astonishment, if not disgust. What do you mean, she said. Well, I said, if you needed it today, God would have given it to you. Because the Bible says, my God shall supply almost all your needs. How many? All your needs. Now, he might give it to you next week. He might bring that wonderful man along next week. Or he might give you another place to live by next Wednesday. But that doesn't indicate indifference or forgetfulness or poor timing on God's part. There is no such thing as poor timing on God's part. His is always perfect. Shall I be angry at a God who knows not only what I need, but when I need it? And then this is the thing that is very dangerous, and I would surmise that there's probably more than one person in this room this morning who is angry with God or upset with God, resentful because of something that has happened or something that has not happened. And this is the dangerous aspect. It makes us vulnerable to Satan, who is called the destroyer. Think what a dangerous position we put ourselves in voluntarily when we get angry with God. Is there anywhere else for us to turn? 
If you're angry with God, I don't know any other refuge. God is my refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. He is the ruler of all, and he's got the whole world where? In his hands. That's not one of the old hymns. That's one of the new hymns. I I mean, within the last three decades, anyway. I thought maybe a few more of you would know where he's got the world. In his hands. He's got you and me, sister. In his hands. Shall we deliberately reject such a refuge? And then... If I'm angry at God, let me remember that I have only this present moment. God does not usually give us previews of coming attractions. But I can look back over these seven decades and remember how worried I sometimes was and how bewildered at things that God had permitted to happen in my life. But now I see, now I can see them as a golden chain of mercies, gifts of God from a merciful father who, like the father Jesus described, would never give his son a snake if he asked for a fish. What looks to us like a good thing might actually ruin us, and how thankful I am for God's withholdings. I'm sure some of you know that lovely little story that Amy Carmichael told her children in India She was three years old, and she learned from adults that God answers prayer. And so she decided that she would test that amazing statement and see whether God answered her prayers. And she got down beside her bed one night, and she prayed for the one thing that she wanted more than anything else in the world, which was blue eyes. She went to sleep in perfect confidence that God would change those brown eyes into blue ones. And in the morning, she woke up, So excited and happy, she jumped out of bed and she pushed a chair over to the mirror by the dresser and she climbed up and she looked into the mirror, into the same brown eyes. But that little three-year-old had no idea that someday God was going to call her to be a missionary in India, where everybody has black eyes and black hair. And that there would be times when she was a missionary when her life would be endangered if she was not seen as an Indian. And Amy Carmichael always wore the sari, and she had beautiful, very dark, wavy hair. She went barefoot. She identified in every outward way that she could with the Indians. But if she had had blue eyes, she would have been recognized and spotted from a distance. Does God know what he's doing? I don't think she ever said she was angry with God as a little girl because he didn't give her those brown eyes or those blue eyes, but she certainly was bewildered, wasn't she? As you and I so often are. What looks to us like a good thing might actually ruin us, might have been a matter literally of life and death in Amy Carmichael's life. And how thankful we all can be for God's refusals, for his withholdings. Can you think back, you who are maybe almost as old as I am, maybe might be a few here that age, you can look back and think of the silly things that you prayed about and thought were so terribly important in your life. I can remember praying when I was in the eighth grade that a certain boy named Bob would like me. Well, 
of all the ridiculous things. And of course, Bob didn't like me, never did. <laughs> now, as I look forward to what may be left of my future, I think of John Greenleaf Whittier's beautiful not lines, I know not where his islands lift their fronded palms in air. I only know I cannot drift beyond his love and care. Keep a quiet heart. Don't pit your will against the will of God. Pause now. Think in your heart. What is that one thing that springs to your mind immediately? So strange to you in the will of God, in what he has permitted or what he has not permitted. Does he know what he's doing? Are we going to resent him? Presumption means dictating to God. It is a display of pride. It is a display of presumption. And it is unbelief, isn't it? Let's call things by their proper names. It is unbelief. We call ourselves believers. And yet, how often we really don't believe what God has said. We forget his promises. We forget his faithfulness. We hear the word of God sometimes and we decide we don't really like it. I've always been interested in people's questions that they ask when I have question and answer sessions, such as we will have today. And often there is that note of I really would rather have answers than holiness. And sometimes we have to choose between the two. God may not give us an answer because he wants to make us holy or he will not give us the answer that we're deep banging on his door to get because he wants to sanctify us and make us like Jesus Christ. So when we ask questions, let's remember that seed that falls on the footpath. Satan takes away from some what has been sown. The seed falls on rocks which have no staying power. When trouble or persecution occurs, they give up. Some of it falls among thistles, which are the worries of this world, the false glamour of riches ambitions which choke out the life. And then there's the seed that falls on good soil. The one who hears, welcomes, and produces fruit. Do you want solutions or do you want holiness? Do you want comfort or do you want Christ? Do you want answers, or do you want orders? Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.4, a soldier on active service will not become entangled in civilian affairs. He must be holy at his commanding officer's disposal. If we are soldiers of Jesus Christ, he is our commanding officer, and we take his orders and we are completely disposable. 
let's never forget that we are completely disposable. I'm going to tell you this afternoon a little bit about the lessons in disposability that God has given me in my life. Yesterday, as I sat for hour after hour after hour and didn't, wasn't even able to be reading a book for a good part of that time because I had to be keeping my eyes watching for the man who was supposed to pick us up in Chicago, because I am an absolutely fanatical um, organizer, as Lars has already given you to understand, and extremely irritated when my time is in any way interrupted or when I have to spend time when I don't have a book with me, which is very rare because I always have a good book, or when I have to do what I had to do yesterday and sit there for all those hours. I just thought, what a waste. But then I remembered I am disposable, you know, and my times are in whose hands? The psalmist says, my times are in your hands, in God's hands. He knows exactly how I am to dispose of my time. And so I can keep a quiet heart. And I really do think that yesterday I kept a quiet heart. I, these human temptations and natural uh, aspects of my personality, of course, are there. And they will always be there. And they will always be in conflict most of the time, let's say, they will be in some kind of conflict with the will of God. Pride, presumption, or something. But he, by his gracious Holy Spirit, speaks to us and says, I'm with you. I'm still in charge. I do know what I'm doing. And this is not for nothing. Any kind of suffering, any kind of bewilderment, any kind of perplexity, Anything you want that you don't have or anything that you have that you don't want, God has assigned it. He has ordained it for our sanctification. Is it too tough? Is it too outdated? Is it not applicable? Do you want to exclude this lesson in sanctification from your life? People say, yes, I do believe in God, but sometimes I can't figure him out. Now, may I see the hands of those of you who can always figure God out? <laughs> God moves in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. My husband and I live on the coast of Massachusetts. I've never seen any footprints in the sea. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Of course we don't understand God. Of course we don't always know what he's doing, but we can be always sure that what he is doing is for our blessing and for our richness and for our sanctification and redemption. Can you honestly read the Bible? and not believe the coincidences. Quotation marks around that word because I don't believe there are any coincidences in God's economy. But there are so many wonderful stories in the Bible of what you and I, humanly speaking, would call coincidences, little things that happened in strange ways. Do you remember how it was, how it came about that Saul got anointed king by Samuel? 
That is an amazing story. It was because Saul's father's donkeys got lost. And his father, Kish, or was it his father-in-law, I've forgotten, sent him out to look for the donkeys. Those blinking donkeys, who knows where they are? And so he walked and he searched and he searched, and on his searching, he came upon Samuel, whom God had told was to anoint Saul king. And so Samuel just happened to be coming along when Saul happened to be looking for the donkeys who happened to choose that day to get lost. And on and on and on. There are so many so-called coincidences just in that one single story. As Saul was going along, he happened to meet some girls who were going up to a feast, and he asked them if, he knew, if they knew where Saul Samuel was, and they said, yes, he's just gone up to the feast himself. If you go now, you'll find him. Coincidences? Jesus sent the disciples to prepare the upper room for that last supper. And he said, go to such and such a place and you will find a man carrying a pitcher of water. Are these merely natural events or is somebody in charge? Will you accept the will of God? Will you believe that even though this particular thing that worries you goes against the grain, you're not going to put your mind, your will against the will of God. You are going to accept his will. Satan schemes against us and we get discouraged because we judge and measure the things that are happening in our lives by human measurements. Gods are infinitely beyond common sense. Those sinkings of heart, those times when all we can think of saying is, oh no! Just the other day, I had a dear friend, an old man, who came for breakfast and he got a phone call while he was there, and I was washing the dishes, and he was saying, oh, oh my, and where is he now? And on and on. So, of course, when he hung up the phone, he told me what had happened. The man had had a very serious accident. A bone in his leg had been broken and splintered and went into his spinal cord, and so now he was paralyzed, and this had all happened within a matter of seconds. This dear man, his first response was not, oh no, God wouldn't let a thing like this to happen to this dear man. He just prayed for him, and we prayed together. May God deliver us from being prideful, displaying our pride, as my brother Phil was doing when he was two years old. We are born proud, aren't we? And we are born fighting. My brother Tom says his baby son, when he was six months old in his crib, was thrusting his fist heavenward, as if to say, my will be done. And that's the way we're born, rebels. No display of pride, no presumption, which is audacity, insolence, arrogance, effrontery. May God deliver us from unbelief. May we hear his word. May the words that you hear today fall on good soil in your heart. There will be some hard words, some tough words, 
I'm using the wrong pair of glasses this morning, and I just had a hard time seeing how many fingers Lars had up back there. My other glasses are in my suitcase. Keep a quiet heart. Conform your will to the will of God, and you will be able to keep a quiet heart. Because Jesus said in his last discourse with his disciples, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. God bless you. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember... The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms.